Well, everyone, we move into a time of teaching, and we're in the middle of a little short three-week series on interpreting our time. And if last Sunday we asked the question, what time are we in? In other words, what eon, what age, what culture, what time are we in? Not like, is it, you know, chief's time or something. I'm just saying, what time are we living in? Then this week we ask, what water are we swimming in? What water are we swimming in? What is the water in which we swim? That's what we're working on this morning. So let's begin then, about half of our time, doing Bible study out of Ephesians chapter 4. So if you brought your Bible or you have it on your phone or whatever, I also gave it to you on a um, half sheet of paper. The text is there so you don't have to get too desperate about trying to locate it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, starting with verse 1 and going down through 7. I put a bunch of mouse print on here that I, I put it on there so you know there's the rest of the section, but we're not going to study that. I don't know why I put it on there in mouse print because all that makes you want to do is read it um, and then struggle. So ignore that part. Let's just go 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 4. Here we go. Uh, this is Paul speaking. The Apostle Paul, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Ah, but then comes verse 7. But to each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. So what I want to point out in these seven verses is the arrangement. The arrangement, I believe, is very significant to Paul's letter here in the fourth chapter, as we call it, to the church in Ephesus. Paul is speaking first and foremost about unity before the individual. The, the, the whole, the we, instead of the me, is how he's arranged it. Verses 1 through 6 before verse 7. Right? Paul is talking to the entire church at Ephesus. The letter is meant to be read to the congregation because mostly people were illiterate. And for that matter, they didn't think about reading things individually. People read things at, into a whole group. It was part of the church service. These letters from, to Ephesus and Colossians and all the rest of them there in the New Testament were all passed around and they were read out loud. The entire text was never meant to be thought of as an individual effort the way we all sit down and read our Bible. So he's talking to the entire church, and it's meant to be read out loud. It's a public letter, and apparently Paul is writing from prison, because he says he's a prisoner of the Lord, and Paul is calling upon the Ephesian Christ followers to live a worthy life, a life worthy of their calling. The Christian life, he says, has a purpose, and it is a purpose wrapped up in the calling of God upon the church, all of them. There is a purpose larger than the individual. The calling of Jesus requires character and virtue, humility, gentleness, patient, uh, patience and bearing up with one another, bearing for one another, 
being for one another. The calling requires an immediate goal of recognizing and maintaining the unity of the Holy Spirit because the church is bound to each other, inextricably bound together in the Spirit of God. This is the water the church is swimming in. It is the water of the Holy Spirit. It is a oneness. Swimming in the water of unity and oneness is what the church is called to. It's a part of who we are. And then, and then Paul provides the theology because we may be asking, or the Ephesians may be asking, why? And then he gives this brilliant theological point here behind this call for togetherness and unity. Why be you united? Because there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And by the way, although this is not what we're talking about, I just have to point this out in case you ever have a Jehovah's Witness knocking at your front door. Here's your proof of the Trinity right here in proof text because Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the Trinity. But here you have it. Here's what you have. The three-in-one nature of God. This God, the Spirit, the Lord, that is the one who calls us. Jesus is calling you. You're bound in the Spirit. Jesus is the one whose name we are baptized and then one God and Father, who's all and in all. But, like I said, proofing the Trinity is not what I'm all about. I just think it's always important to point out this sort of thing when you see it in Scripture, because it's hard to come by. Okay? And here it is. So, back on track. What I'm after here this morning is Paul's arrangement of the us before the me. Notice Paul begins the entire thought. He addresses everyone as one people, one unified called people, called to the body of Christ. How are they one? Because God is one. Their calling, their baptism, their love, their identity is one. Our calling as followers of Jesus, is, um, uh, of, of Jesus upon us is a calling for all of the brothers and sisters to be one. Yes? We are all on the one Jesus bus. You are not on your own Uber. I'm just saying that's the way it works. Then comes verse 7. This is your uber moment. Each one of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Notice the arrangement. Paul begins with all of us. Then he speaks of the individual, the one person, you and me. Now, I find this tremendously important, and I'm convinced that most of the time when devout Christians read this, we gloss over the arrangement of the us before the me And we just simply kind of get to the stuff that applies to us. Or we just take the first six verses and we just go ahead and personalize it and make it all about us. And ignore the fact that actually can't even be interpreted unless it's understood as a a whole. As an us. See, the problem is we constantly are taking everything in the spiritual life and making it privatized. As though we could be a church on our own. As though it's just you. And that has nothing really to do with the faith. Particularly as described right here. But we'll get to that. So just before I bring this scripture forward into our own time. Let me just say that for the past 500 years. Since the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther and all that sort of thing. For the past 500 years. Protestant Christians like Lakelanders have read the word grace here in verse 7, right? But to each of us, grace was, was uh, given grace. We read the word grace and we automatically think of salvation, as in saved by grace alone, 
which we get out of Ephesians, right? Saved by grace alone. But, and we think that grace actually means salvation. But grace is actually how salvation comes to you. Grace is a gift. Okay, you getting the technical language going on here a little bit? So I'm just trying to interpret this for you. So grace is always a gift. But Paul's not talking about salvation here. He's actually talking about grace as it's applied to the gifts of God for the equipping of the church. And that gets down to the little mouse print stuff that I gave you, which we don't have time for. But grace is always a gift. It always has been and always will be. Your salvation, our salvation, is a gift of God. So, um, without going into the whole tiny stuff there, let's just move back to the idea that what Paul's after here, there apparently is some sort of problem in Ephesus as there always is in some new crazy movement like the early church. And there must have been some sort of wacky doctrine or some sort of crazy teaching going on. There seemed to be some problem in authority, centralized in authority. And Paul, writing from a prison cell, is attempting to pull everyone back together and say, look, you guys are one. There's one thing going on here, right? And it's all about God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit who is among you. That's your one calling. And he's trying to pull it back together so that the Ephesian church kind of, can kind of all start paddling in the same direction on one boat. You know what I mean? So uh, I think there must have been something going on and he's trying to fix it. So back to my point then about the arrangement, the us before me. Let me give you this idea then of what water are we swimming in, Okay. Ten years ago, David Foster Wallace at Kenyon College gave a commencement address that I've seen all over the place in books and so forth. I gave it to you there in print because it's kind of fun. And he started his commencement address with this little parable. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the heck's water? So I propose to you that this morning that the, we unknowingly swim in the water of the priority of the self. We are enamored with our self, our self-consciousness, our self-absorption. Everything is about us. It's all about our personal choice. I've got to be me. I think every Frank Sinatra song ever written was all about him. I think for that matter, pretty much all rock and roll music is always about me. What I like about you. And if you really listen to the words of what I like about you, it's really all about him. Some 14-year-old boy, I believe. You know, what I like about you is what everything you do for me. Me, 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 me. Sorry, 14-year-olds. All right, so... In our modern day, the individual is paramount. This is the water we swim in, we breathe it, and we can do nothing about it, all right? We live in a country where you, the individual, gets to vote. You get to run for office. You can drive your own car. You can sue people who get in your way and get on your personal property. We live in a republic. We live in a democracy. We make our money and we plan to keep it. And we're highly offended and grumble loudly about the fact that we have to pay taxes, which is sort of the us part of democracy. And we don't even like that. We are in love with the individual. The primacy, the worship and the adoration of the one person. And it, of course, has been a great thing, and lowered violence and things like that that used to go on before that. 
but we're not too happy about it when we have to share. Now, in Paul's day, 2,000 years ago, the individual was not as important as the community. It was just a cultural thing. And I know that sounds really weird, but imagine, so I'm kind of asking you to zoom out at 35,000 feet here and look down on our, you know, like what time are we in and what water we're swimming in and say, you know what? There was a time, actually most of human history, the primacy of the individual being self-conscious was not really a thing. Didn't that sound strange for us to even absorb? Matter of fact, being self-conscious and the idea of the self as being primary is a really recent development, like in the last 300 years, thereabouts, philosophically speaking, right? Before that, people thought maybe I'm subject to some cosmic forces. Maybe I'm just a small part of the cog of some greater allegorical meaning to the universe. And I'm just kind of a nobody. And I should fit in with culture and with community. I have a part to play, not just in my family, but in the entire village and in the entire people. I'm wrapped up in the story of the gods, if you were Greek or Roman. But the gods aren't there for me. You better be careful because the gods maybe do something to you if you don't comply. Right? This is the world that Paul's living in and um, that the Roman Empire's living in and the Jewish tribe is living in. This idea of being the center of the universe had not really entered into people's minds at that time. No concept of the self. So Paul's letter to the Ephesians didn't really cause those first six verses. They don't really cause anybody any great consternation. Nobody's really upset at the fact that he's saying like, hey, wait a second, you're talking about the we before you talk about my personal salvation there in verse seven. They read the first six verses and they say, yeah, that's totally who we are. The unique thing is the fact that they all have been given gifts to serve the body. Like, really? I have something I do? How's that happen? And see, we flipped it around in our day. We swim in the waters of the authentic self, and we are self-contained in ourselves. Um, we are pressured to be, therefore, unique. Okay? This creates problems for us. We, as being unique selves, as being individuals, are under a pressure, particularly in this day and age, and we could go off on a lot of internet and social media, there's nothing wrong with those, they're just simply a precipitant, a result of this focus on the self, okay? Um, Jamie Smith, um, who teaches philosophy at Bethel College, he's a young guy, and so he's real familiar. All of his students are millennials. So look out, millennials. I'm coming after here for the next second. So um, Jamie Smith describes this whole pressure to become unique. He uses the modern wedding to talk about how this goes. So I'm quoting to you from his book, um, You Are What You Love. Here he goes. The excitement's been building ever since the first Facebook post. The one with the video of him proposing to her in the industrial chic backdrop of the Brooklyn Naval Yard, while a band whose members have beards and lots of banjos surprise the couple with a serenade. The wedding invitations arrive in 1950 vintage cigar tins featuring overlapping images of their tattoos on handmade paper, complete with vintage postage stamps for the RSVPs. The wedding reception will be catered by Korean taco food trucks. 
and the band from the engagement's going to do an encore only with more mandolins. And under a candlelit canopies draped with hops as everyone enjoys the groom's craft beer. The wedding has its own tumbler and its own hashtag, of course, and everyone goes home with their own mouth organ inscribed with the bride and the groom's names. No one will ever forget the day because it didn't really happen until it was posted. This is what Charles Taylor, philosopher Charles Taylor, calls the age of authenticity, which is a rather thick term, so let's just call it the age of the self, okay? We are enslaved, is what Charles Taylor is saying, philosophy is, and Jamie Smith is also a philosopher. They're saying we are enslaved in this idea, this image of the self, that we have to be fresh and cool and unique and reinvent everything. Nobody's wedding's like your wedding. Everything's brand new. Don't, we have disdain for tradition. Because that's not real, man. We can't relate to that. And what the philosophers are saying that these days, as we kind of zoom out and look at ourselves, is that we're trapped in this constant looping of new and unique. Now and new, now and new. It's got to happen right now, and it's got to be new, and it's got to be cooler than anything else. Why else does everybody post pictures of their food? Dude, it's just food, man. I mean, you're trying to say, look at me. My tacos are cooler than your tacos. You know, I mean, that's what's going on. I don't know what's going on. I mean, I take pictures of my food and post it too. (laughs) Exactly. We have this compulsion for now and new. And Charles Taylor states that the constant reinventing of everything traps us in a kind of bubble or a box. And it becomes this pressured box that keeps crushing in on us the faster time and space accelerate. Like everything's just getting quicker and quicker. And I'm not just talking like some old guy who can't keep up, which may be part of it. But I'm just saying for everyone, there's a pressure on things that's happening. Because frankly, what happens is, is we can't tell the difference between looking at pictures of people dying in a tsunami and then laughing and giggling at some puppy. We think we know the difference, but the pressure to shove both of them there together in front of our iPhone is difficult to escape. Now, if you want this to come home, and I mean literally to your home, then let me give you just one example of the pressure, and this will be the consumer pressure. And precisely, it is the consumer pressure about your kitchen countertops. Yes, I'm going after our kitchen countertops at this moment. Because you have a pressure upon you that your kitchen countertops are out of date. I know you just put them in four or five years ago and they were beautiful granite or marble or something very expensive and it was very cool. But you're living right now with this pressure that that's so old. Nobody has granite anymore. And you are about to be crushed and burned to a crisp by the supernova of Nebraska Furniture Mart and Ikea that are pressuring you to change your countertops. Do you feel this pressure? I exaggerated, of course, but you know it's palpable. It's real. It's right there. What was cool three years ago, three months ago, three minutes ago, is no longer. (laughs) 
I don't know which way the elbows are going in the chairs right now. Like, see, I told you we need new countertops. Or like, I told you the old countertops are just fine. Listen to the preacher guy. Listen to the preacher guy. We need new countertops. And it's inescapable. Like, see, told you we have to get them. The same consumer pressure then, if you're not into countertops, goes for trucks, pickup trucks, cars, sports teams. Your team always has to win. They have to win even after they've won everything. Your closet, your living room sofa, garage lighting. Did you know your garage lighting's out of date? You don't have LED, double density, 24 volt? What's wrong with you? Do we need to talk about your hair? You guys talk about yourselves, I don't have any. <laughs> the pressure to be real is everywhere, everyone. And it's a constant thing, and it's a very American, Western, modern thing, philosophers say. It's inescapable. It is the water we swim in. What does it do when it comes to the church and your spiritual life? Or I guess at this moment I ought to say our spiritual life. What happens when it comes to our church experience? What happens when the individual prioritized is prioritized over the larger body of Christ. What happens when we get rid of verses 1 through 6 and only go for verse 7 in Ephesians chapter 4? What happens? Well, we have this. I'm going to show you a picture. There it is, the Elevate Worship Conference. I can totally throw this one under the bus because this is from Northern Seminary. They're putting on the conference and I have a degree from there and I paid them a bunch of money and I don't care. But look at the picture. Can we dissect the picture for a moment? What's going on? She's out in nature, yes? It's a beautiful moment. She's clearly worshiping God. Is there anybody else there? Is there a church there? Does she have any brothers and sisters? Is she in community? No, it's just her in her natural mystic nature place doing some sort of 10 to 3 or 10 after 9, depending on which way you're facing. Because, you know, nobody just wants to put their hands like this or like this or like, you've got to. But I'm dogging on it because this is exactly the water we swim in. When you think of worship, did you think of a stuffy old cathedral? Did you think of pews? Did you think of Quaker benches? Did you think of somebody chanting the Psalms? Did you think of monks in black robes? No. You thought, 10 to 3, man. Me and Jesus out in the woods. It's all good. I'm unique. Not 10 to 9, not 10 to... You know what I mean? This is the water we swim in. It destroys community, by the way, because we don't understand it. Church turns into a consumer event. So if we move on to, say, like, worship, is the worship buzzy? Was it cool? Did they hit it? You know what I mean? Like, hit the mark. You know? Was it awesome? How come the band doesn't do my worship songs? I'm out of here. My friend Tim Suttle, in his book, he says the two worst words in the church are, I'm leaving. Nobody understands stability. Nobody understands commitment. Because we're just on to the next cool thing. Yeah. You know why I'm doing this teaching? Because I'm pressured 
for the last 14 years by every theologian, every author I read these days is saying the future of the church is ancient. The future of the church is ancient. I keep reading it over and over and over. It was first, that phrase was first introduced by a professor named Robert Weber. And he says, the future of the church is ancient. And what they mean is, is if you want to go, if the church is to survive, if Christianity is to survive, it's got to go back to the past ideas about the oneness of Christ in the community. How does it play out? They all keep calling for liturgy. You're like, oh man, don't say liturgy. Liturgy, there's only one way to say liturgy, and that's put the adjective dead in front of it. Dead liturgy. If I say liturgy, it sounds like an antique word. Oh, liturgy. You mean boring, boring, boring liturgy. I, I, last time I was up at a retreat in, up at Conception Abbey, I said, so what do you guys think of the monks over here chanting? I put up pros and cons on the white marker board. Only one thing under the, the pro. Well, they do scripture. All the rest, a long list of cons. Boring, boring. Mostly they're all just about boring. Like, okay, it is boring. They just do the same thing over and over and over. Where's the uniqueness in that, man? Where's the buzz? The word liturgy means the work of the people. I think I put a note in there on your half sheet. Notice how it's impossible to have private liturgy. Even wrapped up in the word is the idea that we do it together. We do some here at Lakeland, but I know it's not the, because of the water that Lakeland was born in. It's the same as the culture because we started off Lakeland trying to be relevant to people. We wanted to go after people who didn't go to church. We tried to make church, we still try to make church very accessible, except when I preach and then it gets a little thick. But, you know, we try to make things accessible as possible. You know why? Because people think church is boring. They think it asks for a lot of money and it's not relevant to their lives. It makes them feel guilty. So we just got rid of all that as much as we could. Now, secret is, is that every church even the most hip, cool, megachurch, Baptist church has a liturgy. Yeah, it's just a bad liturgy, right? We have a liturgy around here, meaning we do the same thing every time. You know, there's going to be some announcements. Iggy's going to be kind of funny. Um, and there's going to be worship. It's going to be cool. And then we do something. And then the old guy talks a long time. And then we do communion. Right? You don't need to take notes on this. This is all pretty easy, right? Now, the Anglicans have a liturgy, and the Lutherans have a liturgy, and the Catholics have a liturgy, and the Orthodox have a liturgy. Synagogue has a liturgy. Why liturgy? Why are they saying go after liturgy? Because liturgy creates identity. Routine builds your identity. You know how we know this? Because all of you with little bitty babies and toddlers are shaping their identity by doing the same routine every day. You yourself find your identity and your meaning in your repetition, not in your new and cool. Okay? You take the baby, right? You know that after dinner, it's 6.30, right? You will do the number of dishes based upon that kid's schedule, right? Let him sit. It's 6.30. If you don't get this kid down by 7.45, you have hell to pay right? Because it'll be a long time of them screaming and kicking and wiggling. 
if you don't get this down. So you know how it goes, right? You get them, and you begin to, like, you go to the diaper thing. You get the onesie on, right? Maybe the footy pajamas, depending on what kind of year it is, what time of year it is, right? And then, you're, you know, it's the snack thing. You're going to read the book. You're going to get them to the bed. And then you're going to do the little prayer thing. And then you're going to pass out <laughs> and go back and get those dishes done. Your life is a liturgy. You wake up in the morning, you work out in your mind, and then, you know, you're going to get dressed, you're going to brush your teeth or eat or something like that. You'd make the coffee the same way. If the coffee's not right, you know, you put too many grounds in it. You know what I mean? It kind of wigs you out. Like, oh, man, what happened this morning? Maybe better luck tomorrow, right? And then you go to work and, you you know, rinse, lather, repeat. At night, you sit around watching you know, streaming some show about somebody's life that's actually having an authentic life as opposed to yours. This is the liturgy of life. And it creates our identity and it makes meaning. And the problem then in modern culture is is we keep trying to reinvent our identity and we don't have one. And the church is losing ground on it and we as individuals tend to lose ground on it. We are pressured and we keep changing our identity, or at least we think we are, all the time. It's a very interesting thing. We'll see how it plays out here over the next, you know, generation. It'll probably be just fine as we get accustomed to it and so forth. And I'm not just, once again, talking like the old guy. But, I mean, for younger people, it'll be interesting. We've only been living with this for about eight years now, right? The whole idea of everybody walking around with a supercomputer in their hand. Where you know immediately whether or not there's a tsunami or the president had something to say, and then everybody says something about what the president said. It's a very new thing. See, everyone, the church is shaped by liturgy. Your life is shaped by liturgy. Your identity is shaped by liturgy and routine. Love is shaped by liturgy. Romance is shaped by liturgy. How many of you on your anniversary wanted to go back to the same place? You know, where he popped the question. Or she said, are you going to marry me or not? You know. (laughs) My grandfather, on my dad's side, this wasn't in first service. So at their 50th wedding anniversary, I think, um, they eloped when they were 17 and, and took a rowboat across the Ohio River in Kentucky over to Indiana where you could get married below 18. And so, you know, they... They stole off from their parents, and they came back across the river because they were married now, and they went to the corner drugstore and had a Sunday. That was their big, you know, honeymoon. That's what they had. They had Sundays at the corner drugstore. On their 50th wedding anniversary, they came back. The same dude who served them the Sundays served them again a Sunday. (laughs) Like, routine, man. Hmm. Love is shaped by routine and liturgy. It's the liturgy of life. Uh, a few years ago, 2014, um, my daughter and my wife, Lori, and I, we went to uh, New York City, you know. Um, remember, Royals were trying to win the World Series against the Giants. And um, so we're in New York City, and um, I begged Lori, I said, I had this in my mind, I said, I want to go to Central Park in New York City, and I want us to get our picture taken on a park bench. I think I have a picture, right? So there we are, we're on this park bench in New York City. And Lori's like, yeah, whatever, you know, I don't care. It's tired. Let's go get something to eat. So uh, my daughter, I said, just take our picture. 
And here's why. They didn't know it, but I'm going to read you a small passage. This is contrary to the mandolins and the banjos and the beards. I'm going to read you um, from a famous Orthodox theologian, Alexander Schmemann, from years ago, who described love this way. And this is why I took the picture. He says this. But once in the light and warmth of an autumn afternoon, this writer saw on a bench in a public square in a poor Parisian suburb an old and poor couple. They were sitting hand in hand in silence enjoying the pale light, the last warmth of the season. In silence, all had been said, all passion exhausted, all storms at peace. The whole life was behind, and yet it was now present in the silence, in this light, in this warmth, in the silent unity of hands, present and ready for eternity, ripe for joy. This, to me, remains the vision of marriage in its heavenly beauty. So I had her picture taken on a bench. I want to get back to that bench someday. Well, I can still make it, you know what I mean? Because these traditions are what cause to give you, this is what gives you an identity. This is what binds you to the human race. I can't tell you, stop being enamored with yourself. <laughs> That's the water we swim in. It, it, I can't tell you to get out of this. We are all in it. I can't get out of it either. But what we can do is we can embrace the routines and the liturgies of life as they come at us and celebrate them. You guys with little kids, stop racing through the routine. This is the beauty. You're shaping their identity. You guys with families where everybody's buzzing at the kitchen table, you know, well, have dinner together, by the way. Create the routine, right? Your kids do better. They statistics show your kids do better in school if they have dinner every night with you guys. You know, gather around the table, do this stuff. You know, go camping, do all those sorts of things, right? This is what shapes you into a family, into a person. This is what we're doing on the planet. This is what makes you healthy. This is what makes you human. This is what makes you belong to God. Lean into it. Life and love are shaped by routine, the liturgies of life. And your soul is shaped by the liturgy. You want to destroy your soul? Then don't have any routine whatsoever. And you won't know who you are. It's just the way it goes.